0: Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner.
1: I'm Zatanna. What do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Welcome to another episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and I'm thrilled to deliver this show to your earballs. Like last episode, I've got a Zatanna story to share with you, and hoo boy, this one is crazy. And after that, another replay segment of Black Canary and Green Arrow stories I covered back on Flowers and Fishnets. Last episode, I made a big to-do about how many people kissed Zatanna in her first meeting with The Flash. This time, we'll discover that Superman has some funny feelings for the Mistress of Magic, and the other Justice Leaguers are really eager to group hug when there's a girl in the center. Of course, the story I'm talking about is from Justice League of America issue 87, which is the seventh chronological appearance of Zatanna, or the eighth if you count that Detective Comics issue where Batman fought a witch that was later claimed to be Zatanna in disguise. As you will see from my review of this Justice League story, Zatanna really deserved to be a full-fledged member of the League much earlier in her history. Then, after that review, you'll get some bonus content. Just like last episode, I'll treat you to a replay of Flowers and Fishnets, Episode 11. On that episode, I covered the Green Arrow and Black Canary stories from World's Finest, Issue 245. For now, I'm going to take a short break to play a promo for another podcast. When I come back, I'll tell you about the absolutely bonkers story from Justice League of America 87. Don't go away.
0: My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it. From 1938 to the present day, from the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years, and if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher... To Superman Forever Radio, that's Superman Forever Radio, Superman Forever. Keep drinking
2: coffee
1: League of America 87 has a cover date of February 1971, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the release date was more like December 10th, 1970, which is about 8 months after Zatanna's last appearance in The Flash 198. The cover to Justice League of America 87 features a white border under the title and running down the left-hand side in order to present headshots of the heroes featured in this issue. Superman, Batman, The Flash, Green Lantern, The Atom, and Hawkman all showcased. Note that our guest hero, Zatanna, does not get a headshot, nor does she appear in the main image that dominates the rest of the cover. We see an unconscious, or possibly dead, Superman in the clutches of a giant green robot. The robot says, Here is the last Justice Leaguer. Dead, as you ordered, King Batman. And King Batman himself laughs on his elevated command chair. Yes, Batman is wearing a crown and holding a scepter like he is the king, and his chair looms over the robot and the fallen bodies of the other heroes at its mechanized feet. Okay, the Justice League defeated and Batman wearing a crown laughing like a maniac? Neil Adams, who provided this cover, has definitely got my attention. Let's see what happens when we turn the page. Batman, King of the World is written by Mike Friedrich. Who you may remember wrote Zatanna's last appearance in the backup story from Flash 198. Keep that in mind. And penciled by Dick Dylan with inks by Joe Giella. The story begins in media res Batman has been injured and lies on the ground barely conscious. Hawkman checks on him and takes to the air in defiance of the giant monstrous enemy that felled Batman, but Hawkman too is taken down by a giant red laser beam. Batman crawls over to Hawkman and activates his Justice League signal device, but collapses before he can send the alert. Batman and Hawkman's attacker stands revealed, a giant mechanical being. The robot picks up Hawkman's signal device and analyzes it. The thing realizes that by using the device, it can summon the rest of the world's heroes and ambush them so they cannot thwart his schemes. Meanwhile, at Superman's Fortress of Solitude in the freezing Arctic, the Man of Steel exercises by working his muscles against giant train car sized compressors. Superman broods away in the fortress, doing his best Batman or Spider-Man impression, thinking about how nobody understands what it's like to be him. He decides company is an order, but the only kind that'll make him feel better is the sort of company that knows how it feels to have superpowers. Thus, Superman flies up to the satellite headquarters of the Justice League of America, in geosynchronous orbit 22,300 miles above the Earth. And who should he find there at the satellite? Not one of his fellow Justice League members, but rather the princess of prestidigitation, Zatanna. Superman doesn't question how the stranger ended up alone in the league's headquarters. In fact, he acts as if they know each other, even though this is the first meeting of Superman and Zatanna in the comics. That doesn't matter though, because Superman feels instantly at ease around Zatanna. Her eyes, her smile, her calm, easygoing air, she brings him peace just being around her. It's weird. Zatanna tells Superman that today is the anniversary of when the Justice League helped rescue her father, Zatara. But just then, an alarm rings out in the satellite. A JLA signal device has been activated by Hawkman in Peru. Thinking the team will need her help, Zatanna casts a magic spell. Ikat em at to go straight to Hawkman's location. Superman flies down there, too, joined on the way by the Flash and the Atom. The four heroes arrive to find the giant robot blasting a rocky wall in a set of ruins. Batman and Hawkman stand near the robot like everything is fine. The Atom questions the strange scene, but Batman insists that everything is totally normal. In fact, if anyone is acting weird, Batman says, it's Adam and the other, since nobody summoned the Justice League. Batman explains that in his civilian identity as Bruce Wayne, he was financing an excavation of Incan ruins for Carter Hall's museum when they discovered the robot buried in the ruins. They activated the robot and, according to Batman, the machine began following his directives and helping the dig. But when Batman describes this, his speech is strained. Superman detects Batman's pulse, heart rate, and nervous system are elevated, indicating that he's lying. Superman also suspects that the robot is eavesdropping on them. Then Green Lantern shows up. Hal asks if Zatanna has joined the team, which would have been the perfect time to invite her, but she says no, she's just visiting. Superman and Green Lantern shake hands like they haven't seen each other in a while, probably like three issues. Then Batman interrupts them, forcing Hal to shake his hand and saying he's the welcoming committee. When Green Lantern asks about the distress call, Batman gets super defensive and orders them all to leave. The Atom asks Hawkman if he's okay. Hawkman nervously tells the others to leave for their own good. Superman scans them with his X-ray vision to make sure they're not imposters. At that point, Batman orders the robot to attack the Justice League since they won't leave. I'm still not sure why they think this is out of character for Batman. The heroes prepare to battle the robot. Zatanna asks to take the first crack at it with her magic. The robot scans the leak and identifies Zatanna as the most dangerous, because of her undefined magic powers. It blasts her with a laser, knocking her out. The Flash tries to use his super speed against the robot, while the atom tries to shrink and go inside it. The robot uses powers to upset the vibrational frequency, stunning the Flash. It also uses some other power to deflect the atom's attack, sending the mighty might knocking into the Flash. And at this point, Batman declares himself their king, and for some reason, Green Lantern thinks this is weird. The robot attacks Superman and Green Lantern. It uses red solar radiation blasts to try and hurt Superman, and it makes its body yellow to be impervious to Green Lantern's attacks. Batman orders the robot to kill Superman and Green Lantern so he can be king of the world. The robot acknowledges that the induced insanity of Batman and Hawkman has distracted the others enough that he can destroy them, and Superman and Green Lantern realize that the robot is controlling Batman, not the other way around, as if that was in some doubt. Superman and Green Lantern charge. Then, inexplicably, something happens. Like, maybe Green Lantern was blasted by the robot? The robot looks down and scans that all of the heroes are dead except for Superman, and Batman, who's still acting crazy, and Hawkman, who's still crying, both under the robot's power. Furious at witnessing the death of the others, Superman attacks the robot, only to be swatted away easily. The Man of Steel falls to the ground, apparently as dead as the other heroes. The robot deduces that Batman's insanity is reinforced by the robot pretending to be his servant, so it keeps up the disguise and shows Batman the supposedly dead superheroes. Batman now wears a crown and scepter, and sits in an elevated command chair like some kind of throne. He laughs maniacally about being king of the world while the robot goes off to continue its mission, by sending a transmission to something called the Corporation. But, shock of shocks, Green Lantern isn't actually dead. His ring intercepts the transmission the robot sends to its masters on some far-distant planet. The atom, who isn't dead either, shrinks down and Hal beams the atom onto the transmission signal, sending Ray Palmer across the galaxy. The atom reemerges in the supercomputer that controls the robot. Near the village of Monte Corvino, people gaze up at the robot looming in the mountains, the robot that's frozen and no longer any danger because the atom shut it down before it could threaten their village. Back with the other heroes, Superman explains that Green Lantern used his ring to create android duplicates of the other leaguers so the robot could think it killed them, all but Superman, who just faked being killed for some reason. Batman and Hawkman are still acting crazy, so Superman flies them to a hospital for treatment. The others are left to stop the party responsible for the robot. Green Lantern admits that his ring isn't as powerful as it used to be, but if the Flash and Zatanna hold his hand, their combined willpower will allow him to transport them across space to where the Atom is. Green Lantern, Flash, and Zatanna teleport to a far distant world where they find the Atom standing near the ruins of the enemy's supercomputer. But that's not all. The whole world appears to be in ruins, decimated by nuclear war. The Atom says the computer was running automatically, but the people of the world must be long dead. But that doesn't mean they're alone. A voice calls out threateningly to the Justice League, and we see 4 superpowered beings, Jack be Quick, Blue Jay, the Silver Sorceress, and Wanjina, together the Champions of Angor. A flashback tells us that they're on a world called Kamnam Lau, that was led by a greedy corporation and that business rivalries led to total nuclear war. Even after the war destroyed Kamnam Lau, the robot emissaries had been dispatched to find more resources. One robot landed on Earth and was defeated by the Justice League. Another robot went to Angor and was defeated by the Champions. The Justice League and the champions of Angor see each other on Kamnam Nam Lao and, thinking the other must be their enemy, charge into battle. We get a double-page splash depicting the Justice League and the champions in battle, along with some preachy captions about war. Green Lantern takes on Wanjina, Zatanna fights the Silver Sorceress, the Flash races Jack Be Quick, and the Atom goes head-to-head with Blue Jay. Jack B. Quick throws a rock at the Flash. Yes, really. The flash dodges, and the rock hits Blue Jay, and at his reduced size, probably smashes all of his bones. Zatanna stops fighting to check on Blue Jay. She convinces Green Lantern to stop fighting and use his power to cure Blue Jay. The champions halt their attack, seeing the others have helped their team member. They must not be enemies, after all. Green Lantern uses his ring to translate their language, and the Angorians and humans trade stories. Then, the Angorians go off to their world, while the Justice League members muse about the nature of war. The Adam realizes that Zatanna was the key to their peaceful resolution. Then, all three men group hug Zatanna in a really awkward embrace as the story ends with a biblical quote in caption, "...and blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God." Okay, so it wasn't just my synopsis, right? That story was batshit insane. I've read a lot of Justice League stories, and to be sure, the Silver Age adventures need to be read with a greater suspension of disbelief than most. But this story from Justice League of America 87 might be the weirdest, the wackiest, the least sensible story I have ever read. If you separate your love for the characters and the material, if you just evaluate the story on the basis of storytelling conventions, structure, plot, dialogue, character motivation, the usual basics... It's terrible. One of the worst constructed stories you'll ever read. Like Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice level incomprehensible. But because we love these characters, we tend to roll with it, and it is a fun kind of crazy, I cannot deny that. The thing I love about this story is I get the idea Mike Friedrich really liked Zatanna. He also wrote her last appearance in Flash 198. Remember in that story where she saved an entire magical realm by kissing a frog demon? And then for good measure, she kissed the sorcerer she saved, and then the Flash 2 just smooched everybody in that story. And now Friedrich gives us a story where she saves the day again, and all of the men in the story can barely keep their bodies off her. Like I said, I don't know why she's not a member of the team, other than DC's stupid official-slash-unofficial policy against more than one woman being on the team at the same time. Denny O'Neill contrived this crazy plot in issues 73 through 75 to bring Black Canary to Earth-1, and become the replacement for Wonder Woman. But Zatanna had already worked with the League, she could have been the new female member at the time, and she can be a really heavy hitter in terms of power when she's written well. Frederick obviously loved Zatanna, so much so that he made all of the men in the story gush over her, starting with Superman, who looks like he's very close to cheating on Lois Lane when he's alone with Zatanna. I mean, she wouldn't even have to utter the magic spell Ode M to get Superman to throw her down on the nearest flat surface. You get an uncomfortable vibe from the scene. And the final image of Green Lantern, Flash, and the Atom smushing her with their big man bodies... It's also weird after the narration makes a big deal about her womanhood and bringing peace and harmony. This whole thing is Friedrich telling us how beautiful Zatanna is, how much the men want to touch her and be with her. But the thing is, she's also instrumental in saving the day at the end. She plays the crucial role that ends the fight between the League and the champions of Angor. And in another context, you might even accuse Zatanna of being a Mary Sue in this story. But that's hardly the weirdest part of the story, because did we talk about Batman? Oh my god, why? Just... Why? Why does he have to think he's king of the world? The robot does not need to indulge in this fantasy of Batman's. Plus, it's also a really small part of the story, despite being the title of the story. He wears a crown and a scepter in one panel. Why? Where did it come from? Was it in his mind? And, again, it's not a big part of the story. The thing about Batman going crazy is resolved without combat two-thirds of the way into the story. The giant robot just kind of fizzles out as a threat so that in the last couple of pages, the hero can go to a different planet to fight an alternate universe version of the Avengers. Oh yes, if it wasn't obvious, the champions are clearly Avengers surrogates. 4 superpowered beings, Jack be Quick, the super speedster, is obviously Quicksilver, Blue Jay, able to shrink in size and fly around, is clearly a version of the Wasp and or Jacket. the Silver Sorceress, who is not Silver, by the way, is a female witch with hex powers like the Scarlet Witch, and of course, Wangina, the Australian rain god, is their version of Thor. Yeah, this is a stealth Justice League vs. Avengers story, but that whole concept is crammed into three pages at the very end of a story that's nominally about Batman thinking he's the king of the world and sending a robot to kill his friends. Also, Batman outs himself as Bruce Wayne in front of the heroes including Zatanna. Then again, maybe she already knows who he is. She seems to know Superman, even though this is the first comic in which they appear together. And Superman doesn't freak out when he finds her alone in the Justice League's super headquarters in space. How did she get there? Did she just teleport up there with magic? She'd never been there before, had she? The League wasn't in the satellite the last time Zatanna teamed up with them. Between this story and the last one with the Flash, I get the feeling that Zatanna must have spent more time with the Justice League after they helped her find her father, because she knows Superman and the Flash, and they know her, despite not being part of the adventure to save Zatara. And for the umpteenth time, this implied familiarity just reinforces my belief that they should have let her join the League at the end of issue 51. But oh well. As much as Mike Friedrich seems to love Zatanna, I'm not sure if he deserved to be writing the Justice League. This issue was the first time he wrote the team without Denny O'Neill scripting over his plots. There's just so much weirdness and stuff that makes no sense, and the pacing, the whole structure, so crazy. Where was Julius Schwartz when this issue was being worked out? I can't even form any more coherent thoughts about how ridiculous this story is. Every single part of it makes me shake my head. If this story works for you, or if you think it follows any sort of internal or external logic, please write in and let me know. And understand, I still enjoy this story as absurd as it is. I love it because Zatanna is rocking out with Superman, Green Lantern, The Flash, and the rest of the heroes. And she does great. She belongs with them. The robot targets her first when it has to attack because it recognizes her magic is potentially the greatest threat. That is a huge deal, and a ringing endorsement. But it's going to take, like, seven years before she officially joins the team. And when it happens, she's ditched the whole fishnets and tuxedo tops, sadly. Uh, It's depressing, but uh, I will cover those in time. Anyway, that was Zatana's team-up with the Justice League of America from issue 87. This issue is available digitally on Comixology, and it's been collected in Showcase Presents the Justice League of America Volume 5 and DC Archives the Justice League of America Volume 10. Now, we're going to take another break. When we return, Green Arrow and Black Canary stories from World's Finest 245. Stick around.
2: (laughs) i'm jen and
3: i'm sean we're here to tell you about our podcast worst collection ever
2: and this is the show where we tell you about the worst comic book collection in existence and it just happens to belong to us
3: we have some of the worst comics from the 70s 80s and 90s they're bad they don't they're not worth anything no good why do we own them I own number of issues of Terror Inc. and Guy Gardner.
2: Basically, we go around to local comic book stores and we buy everything we can out of dollar boxes.
3: We tell you about the weird stuff in them. We tell you about stuff that's related to them. We go the tangents. And we're very uninformed, so. Oh
2: my God, totally. But totally check out our podcast because you'll hear us just talk and joke about Marvel books and DC books
1: from God only knows when.
3: That's right, it's our show, Worst Collection Ever, every Tuesday, On iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Download, rate, subscribe, tell a friend.
1: It'll be good and terrible, but good. Last episode, I kicked off the start of the World's Finest Comics dollar issue era by reviewing the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories in issue 244. Those stories saw Dinah and Ollie fighting Slingshot and the Rainbow Archer in continuous chapters drawn by Mike Nasser and Terry Austin. This time we're picking up with World's Finest issue 245. The book was cover dated June July of 1977, but thanks to Mike's amazing world of DC Comics, we know the actual on-sale date was March 14th, 1977. The issue was edited by Denny O'Neill and featured in awesome Neil Adams cover showing Superman and Batman fighting an army of green Martians with John Jones tied up in the background. The lead feature in this comic naturally starred the man of steel and the Cape crusader along with the manhunter from Mars illustrated by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson and written by the notorious, the zany Bob Haney. And I'm calling them out now. If Rob and Shag don't review this story with Diablo Frank on a future episode of the fire and water podcast, I'm a go buck wild. In the meantime, just like the previous issue, Black Canary and Green Arrow each get a 10-page feature of their own that lead into each other. This time, Green Arrow's story comes first. It's a tale called The Man-Bear Stalks at Midnight, written by Jerry Conway, drawn by Mike Nasser, and inked by Terry Austin. We open with Green Arrow in the Catskill Mountains. He's come to New York following a lead on Slingshot, the villain from the last issue. What Green Arrow finds, instead, are stories of a wild bear terrorizing a ski lodge nearby. So Ali went out hunting, but the creature found him first. The animal attacks, displaying uncanny strength and cleverness. But this is no ordinary bear. It walks upright like a man. It has humanoid arms and legs, but the massive torso and the pronounced muzzle of a bear. While it does strike first against Green Arrow, it doesn't appear to want to kill him. It turns its back on him and starts to leave, when Ollie fires one of his trick arrows that wraps around the man-bear like a steel clamp. But all the man-bear has to do is flex, and the steel clamp is shattered. That is hardly the most impressive feat. The man-bear turns toward Green Arrow and speaks. I don't want to hurt you. This ain't
2: your fight, so beat it. Understand?
1: Then the creature walks off, leaving Green Arrow startled and confused. Ali returns to the lodge, where he and Dinah are staying. He complains about losing the man-bear and not really having any idea what the creature even is, and about his whole reason for coming here turning out to be a bust. He leans on Dinah, telling her he doesn't know what he'd do without her. Dinah tells him he might have to figure out, because she's thinking of getting a new job. Apparently the flower shop isn't bringing in the business, and it's draining her savings. Ali offers to help support her financially, which is the last thing she wants to hear. She doesn't want charity from Ali, she wants a new career, an identity of her own. She storms off, and Ali assumes she'll come back whenever her womanly problem dissipates. Green Arrow heads back out into the night looking for the Man Bear. He searches for hours and finally discovers the creature wreaking havoc in the lobby of the Marigold Hotel. The archer gets his attention with a boxing glove arrow, and then, after sparring with the brute, wraps him up in a cocoon arrow. Ali figures if the man-bearer, who self-identifies as Ursus, is intelligent enough to speak, then he can reason and express himself, so Ali gives him a chance to explain why he's terrorizing resorts in the area. But Ursus breaks out of the cocoon arrow's binds and knocks Green Arrow out. When Ali comes to, he learns that Ursus broke into the hotel vault and made off with the staff payroll. Green Arrow pursues the beast and distracts him with a magnesium flare arrow. While Ursus is blinded, Green Arrow manages to stun him. Later, the man-bear is caged in the local jail cell, but Green Arrow is none the happier. He tells Dinah that Ursus isn't some random freak of nature. He's a man who was turned into a monster, and Ali promises to find out who is responsible. Dinah promises that she will help him unravel this mystery. And the story ends with the caption, The End? Hardly. We've only just scratched the surface of the Man Bear mystery, reader. Join us as it continues on the page following in the Black Canary story which could only be titled, Hospital of Fear. Once again, the art team of Nasser and Austin turns out some gorgeous work, and I've got to start with their rendition of Dinah. To borrow a phrase from the irredeemable shag, she looks smokin' hot. She's not in her Black Canary costume in this chapter. Instead, I would call this her white fox look. And you know, bless the 1970s, because Dinah is dressed in white, skin-tight bell-bottom jeans and a white, sort of midriff-revealing halter top. It's basically a white bikini top. Her black hair goes down to her shoulders, and she's got a choker around her neck. Damn, she looks good. I'll make sure to post these pages on the blog. As for the rest of the art, Green Arrow looks good, he's on model, the man-bear is really impressive in some of these panels. It's clear that he's not hes not totally a bear. His body and facial structure are different enough, but he still looks savage and terrifying. Looking at the script, you know, Jerry Conway, he gets the characters of this era. Ollie is hard-headed and egotistical. He thinks he's loving and supportive of Dinah and doesn't understand why she snaps. It's obvious that Dinah is restless. She's been defined by her life as a florist and as Green Arrow's partner for most of her publication history. And she wants something new. I wholeheartedly embrace this desire and I hope it plays out in the future. Oh wait, this was 40 years ago. Yeah, she can run, but she doesn't get far. The Man-Bearer Ursus is more complicated than a typical werewolf. He's not rampaging and murdering innocent people because he's a feral beast. There is some intellect behind his blazing animal eyes. He can speak, he can reason, and he can rob a vault. Is he a man-made monster? Certainly looks that way. We'll need to read more to find out the truth. And that's what we're going to do right after this break.
0: Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like.
3: One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the
1: Caped Crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast.
0: To the Batmobile, let's go! Up! Up!
2: And away! Atomic man
1: Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at GreatKrypton.com. The second segment of this story, called Hospital of Fear, is also presented by Conway, Nasser, and Austin. It picks up with Dinah Lance, now in her Black Canary costume, spying a trio of suspicious men sneaking up to the wall of the county jail where Ursus is being held. Black Canary springs into action, pretty handedly whooping the three men. Unfortunately, she didn't notice one of them plant a shaped charge on the wall of the man-bear's cell. The explosive detonates, throwing Black Canary to the ground with a thundering concussive force. The jailbreakers, thanking their lucky timing, slip into the jail cell and drag the unconscious man-bear away. Canary is woken by the cops, who tell her Ursus and his rescuers have escaped. When Dinah gets back to the lodge, she discovers that Green Arrow is gone. Ollie left a note saying he was called back to Star City. So his whole righteous pledge to solve the mystery of the man-bear just four pages ago? Yeah, that's all forgotten. But don't worry, the Canary's got this. During her fight with the men, she overheard one of them drop the name Dolchek. Dinah does some digging and finds out that a criminal named Herman Dolchek was recently paroled and got a job at the hospital near the Marigold Hotel. Dinah goes to the hospital and asks the receptionist if a Herman Dolchek works there. The nurse directs her to the second floor, but Dolchek happened to be in the lobby and witnessed this exchange. So when Dinah goes up to the second floor, Dolchek gets the drop on her with a chloroform-soaked rag, knocking her unconscious. She wakes up, strapped to a gurney in an operating room. The three men she battled earlier stand vigil over her, dressed as orderlies. Ursus, the man bear, is bolted to the wall, and in walks the mastermind, a villain who calls himself simply the Doctor. Interestingly, Dinah does not wake up dressed in the civilian outfit she wore when Dolchek jumped her. And she's not naked, either. She's dressed as Black Canary. The bad guys found her wig and her fishnets in her bag and decided to dress her up in costume, on the doctor's orders. Does this make any sense? Hell no. But we're nearing the climax of this story, and the hero has got to be in costume. Speaking of which, the doctor wears a modified short-sleeved surgical jacket, a surgical mask and cap, and dark glasses. It's not the most striking or memorable costume ever, but it does its job in that you look at it and you instantly think, medical, and bad guy. Simple enough. The Doctor tells Dinah that Ursus will kill her. He villain monologues about how Ursus is half-man, half-beast, and while his beast is physically dominant, the creature still retains his humanity. That's why he hasn't killed anybody. But the Doctor gives Ursus an injection that will suppress his human mind, driving the animal wild so that he savagely murders Black Canary. The injection does, indeed, drive the man-bear into a rage. He breaks free of his binds and attacks the doctor first. You know, because he's a bear and the doctor was closest. The three goons make a run for it, and Dinah frees herself from the gurney. Because the chloroform damaged her throat, Dinah can't use her canary cry against the man-bear. That means she has to engage him in physical combat. Their fight spills out into the hall, where orderlies and patients witness the monster and call the police. Black Canary uses judo chops to the man-bear's neck to stagger him, and then she blasts him with a fire hose. The Doctor regains consciousness and pulls a gun on Black Canary. Ursus, either wanting to protect Dinah for some reason, or simply wanting revenge against the Doctor, charges the man, and they both go crashing through the window and falling to their deaths. In the epilogue... Black Canary learns from the sheriff that the so-called doctor wasn't actually a doctor, just an intern. And as such, he couldn't possess the medical genius to have created the man-bear. That means the true mastermind is still out there, and Canary is determined to find him and stop him. Hopefully, her commitment is a little stronger than Green Arrow's was last chapter. So... I liked Hospital of Fear a lot more than the Green Arrow chapter, in large part because we didn't have Green Arrow ruin everything with his talking and his thinking. Dinah handles herself well in two great action beats. Mike Nasser and Terry Austin give her some nice fight choreography, first when she's engaged with the jailbreakers, and later when she's fighting Ursus. Of course, by far the best-looking page in this story is when Dinah goes back to her room and strips off the Black Canary costume. We get to know her a tiny bit better on this page, and it looks great. They do a superb job of making her look gorgeous. What Jerry Conway does equally, superbly, is nail the compassion in Dinah. She really feels for the man-bear. She senses the pain and the inner conflict tormenting the creature. She doesn't believe for a moment that Ursus wants to kill her. The man inside has no control. That's why she doesn't go on the offensive during her fight, and she's saddened when he dies killing the doctor. She thinks, what a sick, sad waste, and her resolve to stop the real mad scientist comes directly from that fiery compassion. As for the new villain in the story, the new jailbird called the Doctor, he's okay, if easily disposable. Like I said, his appearance is easily identifiable, which is good, but it's not nearly as garish or enjoyable as Slingshot from last issue. The most interesting thing about the Doctor is his speech pattern. He has this broken speech, interrupted by pauses, and it's weird. He says things like, considering the, uh, fact that you will soon be, uh, dead. I think Conway is trying to imitate a famous movie actor or character, but I can't tell who it is. I get, uh, Peter Laurie for some reason, and a Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons in another case, so... Considering the, uh, fact that you will soon be, uh, dead. Or... Considering the uh, fact that you will soon be uh, dead. In any event, this Doctor character would make a cool addition to the Arrow television series, so long as Jerry Conway got appropriately compensated for the creation. In future issues of World's Finest, Green Arrow would continue his pursuit of Slingshot, while Black Canary would stay on the hunt for the man responsible for the tragic life of the man-bear. And I will definitely be following these stories in future episodes of this podcast. Well, if you listen to Flowers and Fishnets, you know the last thing I said there was less than accurate. I never got around to covering more World's Finest stories, as my coverage of Black Canary's two different ongoing series dominated the rest of the podcast. But I will make that promise again. Next episode is all about Black Canary and Green Arrow from World's Finest 246. Ollie gets a rematch with Slingshot, while Dinah fights some lumberjacks in Canada. And if you're really lucky, she might get naked and jump in the shower by the end of the story. Now, I'm going to take one more promo break and come back with listener feedback.
0: Hello there. This is Jared albrick a.k.a. the Yard Sale Artist, with a quick podcast promo for my show, Comics with Normies. Here's how the show works. Using my yard-sailing skills, I acquire a random comic book from a yard sale. I then give said random comic to a normie. A normie being a person who doesn't normally read comic books. Then, on the show, I'll sit down with the normie to discuss the issue, get a real outsider's point of view, and see what some of the comics that we love, and maybe not love so much, seem like to those normal folks we see walking around on the streets each day. It should be a fun perspective and good for a few laughs. You can check out the Comics with Normies podcast, along with some other fun-filled podcasts from White Rocket Entertainment, on iTunes and at White whiterocket.com. Dot podbean.com. And feel free to join the show using Twitter handle at Normies Podcast or on Facebook at Comics with Normies. Once again, you can find Comics with Normies on iTunes and at Whiterocket.Podbean.com. We'll see you there.
1: Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from 2 Old 2 New Podcast, Andre79 Oliveira, Ange, Bill Bear, Birds of Prey Podcast, Columnar, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, D at No one Daniel R. Budnick, fan, Gregor Rougeau, Jeffrey Brown, Keith G. Baker, Con L., Robin L., World Spine Podcast, Tim Fabella, Treasury Comics, Unearthly Visions, Waiting for Doom, and Warlord Worlds. New Facebook likes and shares came from Abadaba, Adam Guerin, Chris Franklin, Christopher Doherty, Clinton Robson, Coffee and Comics, Cosmic Cat Comics, Eric Ziegler, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Grant Richter, H. Daniel Rybolt, Jared West, Jim Romolde, Keith G. Baker, Martin Gray, Mike Peacock, Rich Grimmel, Rob Kelly, Scott Cage, Shag, Siskoid, Van Zee, and Zoom Yukonori. Keith G. Baker said on the Facebook page that The Flash was the best boyfriend Zatanna ever had. That probably says a lot about her love life. Abadaba said, we need more kissing in comics. And Gord Tolton said, I too share your high regard for Slingshot. A good street-level villain, the kind needed for at least four of the heroes featured in this issue. Green Arrow, Black Canary, Batman, and The Vigilante. All could have been in Slingshot's sling sights. That's kind of hard to say. He also reminded me of the weapons-oriented Manhunter from the Goodwin-Simonson run. Well, I'm glad someone else appreciates Slingshot. Okay, moving on to the comments posted on the Fire & Water website at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Dr. Ange of the Supergirl blog. Ange said, As you say, the lip-locks are pretty strange. These aren't pecks on the cheek, everyone is drawn to make it look like these could be full-on open-mouth kisses. Given the positioning, there is a sense of passion in all of them, and of all of them, the flash kisses are the most off-putting. Barry doesn't seem to be fighting this or embarrassed in any way. He's diving right in. And then Chris Franklin, from different shows here on the Fire & Water Network, he reminded me of something that I hadn't even thought of when I read the story. To make matters worse, Barry and Iris were married at this point. Gah, I didn't even think about that. Barry and Iris West got married in The Flash 165 four years prior to the story Call It Magic. I didn't even consider where these events were on the timeline of their relationship, but geez, it makes the whole thing that much weirder. And then Chris went on to say, I know Mike Friedrich was a very young writer at this point. Maybe he had a crush on Zatanna and really wanted to kiss her, hence the multiple spit swappings going on in the story. Like we later learned with cosplayers, a racy costume does not equal consent. (laughs) Nice. Well, I think the issue of Justice League that we covered this episode is more evidence that, yeah, Friedrich really was into Zatanna. Rob Kelly from, you know, everything, he said, I like the idea of turning this into one of those DC 100-page giants, featuring a reprint in the back. Where's the crossword puzzle? Um, 13 across, Daily Planet Photographer, 10 letters, third letter M. Uh, Rob continues, I've never read this story, but when you said it was drawn by Heck and Coletta, I prepared for the worst. But I found myself kind of liking what I saw. I know, I'm as shocked as you. And yes, once again, Steve Bannon. Please, Rob, that's the national security czar you're referring to. At least say Steve Bannon in his fat, alcohol-drenched, capillary-bursted face. Martin Gray, who has the privilege of watching America's great shame from across an ocean, said... Well, that was rather the snogtastic tale. It should be reprinted with the kissing superhero story from Lois Lane 29, and the starry-eyed Siren of Space from Superman 243, and the kissing booth short from Lois 53. Hey, it could be an 80-page kiss giant. (laughs) Kiss giant sounds terrifying. As I've said previously, I like the art of Don Heck. His women were alluring, almost on a Wayne-Boring scale. Uh, When the story plays to his strengths, I'm fine with Don Heck, but most of the time I don't think superheroics plays to his strengths. Alan Wright said, Another fun show, and I'm really glad you're picking up the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories from World's Finest again. I grew up with those stories. I remember when rereading Hard Traveling Heroes for an upcoming Green Arrow article, I was shocked by how weak Black Canary seemed. And then I reread World's Finest 250, and when Black Canary tells Green Arrow that her past weakness and then anger is not who she is, but a temporary reaction to grief, I realized here was the Black Canary of my youth, strong, capable, assertive, and willing to call Green Arrow on his crap. Yes, she loved Ollie, but not in the passive way it seemed in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, or even the Action Comics backups. Not that everything was perfect in World's Finest, but I have fond memories. Well, that is good to hear, because I plan to continue covering that run starting next episode. Edo Bosnar said, I really loved the Dollar Comics era at DC, and in the case of World's Finest, I usually like the backups better than the main Superman-Batman story, and I especially loved the Black Canary and Green Arrow features. I would so love it if DC published a book that reprinted all of the Black Canary and Green Arrow backup stories that had appeared in several titles throughout the 70s. I would too. I continue to be amazed at how DC doesn't promote their back catalog of Green Arrow and Black Canary stuff, given the success of the Arrow television show. On the other hand, they have done a good job of collecting the Mike Grell series, but come on, go deeper than that, guys. Edo added, Almost forgot, completely agree about Slingshot being an awesome villain. I'm also mystified as to why he was never used that much. I think he's the perfect arch-nemesis for Ollie. I am telling you, Slingshot and Red Dart, they should have been heavyweights. David A. Scutiera said, Mike Nasser's Canary made me a man. Very nice, Dave. Ward Terry said, this was a fun listen. I hadn't realized that Friedrich and Heck had done some Flash stories. I thought it went Infantino, Andrew, Novik with no break. As I mentioned, the story Call It Magic was a backup story in Flash 198. I don't know if Heck did any other stories of the main series during this era. I think Gil Kane was the regular artist at this time. Ward goes on, Thanks for including the older broadcast. I'd probably seek them out eventually, but it's all I can do to keep up with current Fire and Water podcasts. I'm another lover of the Green Arrow and Black Canary short stories from the 70s and early 80s. Action comics, World's Finest comics, Detective comics, all included some great stuff both in terms of stories and, especially as far as I'm concerned, character development. Ali and Dinah had distinct personalities. Stories like the ones included here show that they can each carry their own tale as well as work together as a team. There's no phony, I don't need your help kind of thing. Dinah asks Ollie for information about a highly skilled archer because he's smart about that stuff. Ollie hunts down Slingshot because he almost killed Dinah, and that makes it personal. Nasser and Austin also did superlative work here, especially with the sound effects. Fun, fun stuff. And finally, got a comment from Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. Frank said, I don't think I ever congratulated you on breeding, a circumstance I'm horrified of and have successfully avoided to the best of my ability and knowledge. Best of luck for the rest of your life with incubating and developing a hybrid of yourself and your significant other. Damn it, Frank, I don't want to cry on this show, but when you say things like that... Uh, yeah, for any of my listeners who might not have heard elsewhere, my wife is pregnant. We are expecting a child this summer. I have no idea what that will do to my podcasting schedule, but lucky for this show is most episodes of Power of Fishnets I do by myself without a guest, so I should be able to keep this podcast fairly regular because I'll be able to find odd times to record bits and pieces. That is the intention, anyway. We'll see if I can actually succeed in that. Uh, And I specifically said most of the episodes on this show I record alone, because in the near future I will have some guests helping me cover a few of these stories. I am excited for those. Back to Frank's comment, though. When I was doing heavy editing on the Marvel Superheroes podcast and getting it out roughly weekly, I had a lot of leftover material lying around that I used for bonus, repurposed clip shows. I got away from that for a number of reasons, but a primary one being the realization that I myself am listening to so many podcasts that I don't want to devote time to re-listening to stuff I already heard. Okay, two things. This episode should be the last replay feature for the foreseeable future because I didn't do any other World's Finest issues on the old podcast. The other thing is, Frank just consolidated several podcast feeds onto the Rolled Spine feed, so he's been pumping out repeat shows for the last month or so. Okay, that is going to be all for the feedback. Uh, There was, however, a running comment that I skipped over, but... I'll bring it up just because a number of people mentioned it, and that is the short and strange romance that The Flash and Zatanna shared in Justice League of America issues after Iris died. I don't really want to address it now, because hopefully I'll get to those issues down the road, and I can really kind of dive in and dissect it then. But anyway, yeah, that is all for this episode. Next time, I am just reviewing the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories from World's Finest 246. Then, the episode after that, a Superman and Batman story from earlier in World's Finest History that includes a very brief Zatanna appearance. Talk to you later. (laughs) Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and Eva Aisin Yad.